please can I ask you to take a Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And if you were given a Bible on the way in, you're looking for page number 848. Mark chapter 12, page 848. As we find that in our Bibles, I'm going to read from verse 13 to 17, but before I do, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we study his words together. Father, as we listen carefully to your word this evening, please would you show us the living word, Christ Jesus. Give us ears to hear his voice. Give us hearts to respond in wonder and love and praise to you. These things we ask for the sake of your glory, for the sake of our salvation, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 12 then, let me read from verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So we join Jesus again this week as he continues his question and answer session in the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And we've seen so far in Mark that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem with a clear purpose as the savior king of his people to die on the cross on their behalf so that they might be forgiven. He knows that he will die at the hands of these individuals to whom he speaks. But just for a little while longer, before that happens, he wants to keep on talking to them. He wants to teach them and to teach us more about him, such as his patience, such as his grace, even towards his enemies, even towards those who will shortly have him crucified. And we saw last week that the questions that Jesus is being asked in the temple by the religious authorities, by the local authorities, these are emotionally, culturally, and politically charged questions. 
These episodes in Mark feel more like a really loaded prime minister's questions that we might watch on a Wednesday. We've certainly seen a few of those over the past few years. Or perhaps someone being grilled at a public inquiry with everyone listening really, really carefully, clinging on to every single word said, looking for an opportunity to expose somebody as a fraud. There's a similar ominous tension in the air as Jesus is being interrogated by these authorities. Already they've tried to corner him. Already they've tried to confront him. And we saw last week them doing this by questioning his authority directly. By saying, by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Who gave you this authority to do them? And in response, we listen to Jesus brilliantly turn the tables on his accusers, not only showing his divine authority as the Son of God, but also revealing just how murderously hard the hearts are of those who are challenging him. And so if last week was round one between the authority of the religious leaders and the divine authority of Jesus in the temple, this week we see round two, or the next round, But what we see in these verses is the stance of the religious authorities changing ever so slightly. See, as he addresses everyone in the temple, Jesus is going to have something to say to more or less everybody. So last week in chapter 11, verse 27, it's the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders that come to him. This week, verse 13, They send some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. And then next week, in verse 18, they send the Sadducees before eventually he speaks to, verse 28, one of the scribes. Regardless of who they send his way, regardless of who he speaks to, Jesus knows the condition of every single one of their hearts and knows exactly what to say to each and every single one of them. His teaching is a sign of his patience and his grace, But Jesus is not going to pull his punches. He's going to give them exactly the answer to the question that they need, even if it's not the one that they're looking for. And so the first thing for us to consider this evening, verses 13, 14, and 15, is the Pharisees and the Herodians laying a trap for Jesus. The authorities lay a trap for Jesus. I'm reliably told that within boxing, there's a technique you can employ as a boxer to sneak in close to your opponent and then hit them with a jab that they're not expecting. It fits within the category of what's called dirty boxing, and it's the physical equivalent of what the religious leaders are doing here in chapter 12, verses 13 and 15. See, we read in verse 12 of chapter 12 that they are seeking to arrest him. But they fear the people because of that fear that they have of the people that gather around Jesus. They don't have the courage to do it publicly. So they feel like they need to trap him. But they can't do it there and then. So they scuttle away and leave him be. And then in verse 13, we read that they substitute in some of the Pharisees and Herodians, who would be supporters of the local Roman rule in Jerusalem. And they form a team in order to trap Jesus in his talk. Verse 13. Now the last time the Pharisees and the Herodians collaborated together was Mark chapter 3, where they decide in verse 6 to destroy Jesus. 
That's their goal, to silence him, to silence his teaching, and ultimately to end his life completely. And so unsurprisingly, their approach to Jesus in verse 14 is not a genuine approach. It's not a sincere approach at all. It's full of false flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. There's the flattery. There's the approach to Jesus getting nice and close. And here comes the dirty boxing jab. Verse 14 again. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, Jesus, you who teach God's word, what does God think about paying taxes to Caesar? Let us know. And please, Jesus, let the crowds know. They'll be really interested to hear what you have to say. And yet Jesus sees exactly what's going on here. He knows, verse 14, their hypocrisy. Their words might be true. He might not be swayed by appearances. He might truly teach the way of God. But they have no real desire to listen to him at all. And so he says to them, verse 15, why put me to the test? See, last week at the end of Mark chapter 11, we read that Jesus trapped the authorities in a scenario where they couldn't give an answer without being stuck either way. And this week, the religious authorities think that they've got Jesus trapped in a very, very similar predicament. It's a disingenuous question that they're asking, but it's an extremely dangerous question that they're asking. The Pharisees are not stupid. They've approached Jesus alongside the Herodians, those who sympathize with Rome, to ask Jesus a question about Rome. They've picked their company. They've picked their question very, very carefully here. And it's a trap in some ways because the local authorities know fine well that the Jewish people are very, very firmly under the harsh oppression of Rome and under the harsh oppression of a tax system where they're being exploited by crooked tax collectors. And so if Jesus answers their question positively and says in front of the crowds that the people should pay taxes to Caesar, not only would he anger and upset the citizens of Jerusalem, but he'd be seen to support a regime which was rife with corruption. However, if Jesus answers negatively and says in front of the Herodians that people should not pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be seen as instigating some sort of uprising against Rome, and that would be the perfect opportunity that they needed to arrest him. It's a political hot potato. I'm sure we can all think of moments when a leader on our TV screens or our radios has been asked a question that has left them floundering entirely as they realize that one wrong word could land them in serious trouble. Perhaps it's a question on immigration, a question on the environment, an ethical issue, a question on a geopolitical manner, matter, and they've either answered in such a way where their response has led to them losing the debate that they're in, or perhaps even losing their platform entirely. 
or they fudge their answer in a way which clearly shows that they're so crippled by their audience that they just don't know what to say. And that's where we are at the end of verse 14. The same tension, the same uncertainty for Jesus. One wrong word could lead to the betrayal of his people, the affirmation of a corrupt regime, whereas another wrong word could lead to his premature arrest. It's a snare designed to catch Jesus, and as snares go, it's a pretty good one. Realistically, it's what humanity has been doing ever since the fall. It's what the human race has done for years, decades, centuries. There's nothing old, nothing new in the attempts of the authorities here in these verses. They've tried to trap God. They've tried to expose him as malevolent or a fraud, unreliable, and ultimately to silence what he says. And it really is the only thing that the religious leaders have left to do. It's the only thing that the world has left to do when they're presented with the challenge of Jesus. His wisdom, his gospel are both so blindingly bright to the eyes of a dark world, a world which is so far fallen from his holiness, that really one of the few things that the world can do is to try and challenge the integrity of his character. And I'm sure we've experienced that over the years as his people, perhaps with a sneer, perhaps with anger. Attempts are made time and time again to discredit Jesus, to discredit his teaching, to expose him as a fraud, to silence him. But even the best laid traps simply will not work on our Savior and our King. See, what has struck me this week as I've studied these verses is Jesus' command of the conversation, but also his calmness in the conversation. With his, his mission on the line, his loyalty to his people on the line, integrity to his word on the line, let's consider his response. One which, verse 17, leaves the local authorities speechless, marveling at what he says. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus turns the tables on the authorities. The wisdom here that Jesus embodies and displays in his answer completely outstrips any wisdom of the authorities that he faces. It's a total mismatch, one where Jesus outmaneuvers the best legal, best religious, best political minds of the day and lands a counterpunch on them. See, Jesus asks them for a denarius, a coin which bears the image of the creator of the coin, Caesar. And he asks the Pharisees and the Herodians, with the crowd listening in too, whose likeness, literally whose image, whose inscription is on this coin? It's the same word, image, that we had read earlier for us in Genesis, when God makes mankind in his image. Whose exact imprint is on this coin, asks Jesus. And the answer is, verse 16, well, Caesar's image. His portrait on a denarius stares dead ahead, commanding the allegiance of he or she who holds the coin, commanding the respect of the territories and the nations that Rome has conquered. And with all of these worldly authorities staring at Jesus, 
he says to them with a simplicity and yet an immense profundity, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You can almost imagine him pushing the coin back into the hands of the Pharisees and Herodians or perhaps flicking it at them. See, if the authorities were closing in on Jesus to box dirty, he has not only read their intentions, not only swerved out of the way, but has seriously challenged them in what he has said. See, Jesus says, in this Roman-created society, give back to the creator, Caesar, the things that are his. Render to Caesar, give back to him exactly what he is due. But in this God-created world... In your God-created hearts, in your God-created bodies, give back to the creator, God, the things that are his. Give back to God exactly what he is due. That which bears Caesar's image is that which you can give back to Caesar. But that which bears God's image is that which we must give back to God. Jesus is talking about us. He's talking about humanity, Pharisee, Herodian, Jew, or otherwise. Jesus is teaching all of us that we bear the image of God as mankind made in his likeness. And that has huge implications for all of our lives. He is talking not just about our bodies, but our worship our praise, our spiritual allegiance. Caesar may have made the denarius, stamped his image on it to show his authority, but God has uniquely made us, stamped his image on us to show his authority. This isn't just a clever way of dodging the authority's question. It's a warning. It's a warning to them. He wants them to see the perilous position in which they are in. In his words, Jesus is saying, well, okay, if you're persuaded and determined that Caesar is owed taxes as the owner of these lands, how do you contend with the reality that God is owed your worship and your lives? If Caesar is due these coins as their creator, how much more is God due our lives as our creator? See, their biggest problem, oblivious to Jesus, sorry, oblivious to them, but not to Jesus, that's what I mean to say. Their biggest problem is that in their rejection of Jesus, in their refusal to listen to his words, in their refusal to accept his teaching and his authority, they have not rendered to God the things that are his. These Pharisees, the Herodians, despite being made in the image of God, They have given to the state that which is God's. Their worship is of religion or Rome. And so Jesus' words to them this evening serve as a warning to the authorities to turn away from their stubborn, spiteful rejection of their creator. And it's an invitation instead to give to God what he is due. Their soul, their lives, their all. And it is both a warning and an invitation for us to this evening. 
This is a command from the Lord Jesus to give to God what is his. Our existence, our allegiance, our worship. Jesus' words here deepen our understanding of the offense that every single one of us commits when we sin against the God who made us. We choose to give to something else, that which belongs to God. We are choosing to reject the creator whose image we bear, who earnestly desires our worship, the God that we were designed and handcrafted to praise and adore, and our worship is sinfully directed instead, misdirected towards another authority that is not him, one which does not bear his image. It's an action that offends God, completely misunderstands what we were created for, and deeply damages ourselves distorting our image-bearing as we refuse to worship the God that printed his likeness onto us. See, as Jesus deconstructs their argument and shows them his divine teaching and wisdom, pointing out their sins, pointing out their rebellion against God, pointing out their refusal to give to God what is God's, it's always with the intention of the hearer understanding and repenting of their sins. We've seen Jesus do that throughout Mark's gospel. This is a rebuke to the Pharisees. It is a rebuke to the Herodians. But it's also a plea to turn away from giving to Rome their hearts and their worship, to turn away from giving to religion their hearts and their worship, and instead to give back to God the heart and the worship that are his. His will is always for the, re the rebel to repent, even when the very authorities that will soon come to arrest and crucify him are those to whom he speaks. Such is his heart for reconnecting lost sinners to the God who made them and loves them. And Jesus has managed to teach and to warn all of us of all of that with just a few words and one little coin. Now, I think there are loads of ways in which this applies to us. We are commanded here by the Creator to give to God what is His. Our lives, our praise, our love, our obedience, and the glory that He is due. That is the only way that we will ever be saved from sin and saved from the wrath of the Father. We'll soon hear Jesus teach the authorities the most important commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And as I stand here listening to Jesus' words, give to God, render to him, give back to him what is his, I know that I have not done that with my life. I know only too well that I have given to me what is God's. We have given ourselves to ourselves or to whatever we have wanted to give ourselves to. And that is what makes Jesus' message and his mission here such good news. See, in his mercy, God has sent us his son to reverse our sinful behavior, to give us new hearts, to set our worship in the right order, not in our own strength, but in his he has come to give his life 
as a ransom for the image bearers that have chosen to reject the God who stamped his likeness on us. He has come to unite us to himself and to give us new life, one which increasingly bears God's image over time in a clearer way, as we were always meant to, with the wonderful promise that one day we'll do it perfectly in a renewed earth. See, as we realize the ways in which we have failed to bear God's image as we ought to, as we realize that, we also realize that we are united eternally to the one who bore God's image perfectly. We are united eternally to him who is both truly God and truly man. He has succeeded as an image bearer where we have failed. He has forgiven us where we have sinned. And so from that position of union with Jesus, from that position of forgiveness from him, no other thing can demand our allegiance in a way that would ever compromise our worship of the Lord. Give to the state to that which belongs to the state. Jesus is not ambiguous on that. But he says, never give to the state that which belongs to the Lord. Never give your heart, your soul, your mind, or your strength to any worldly power or authority. They cannot claim these things, nor are they ours to give away. Instead, give back to God what is his. Everything that I am, heart, soul, mind, and strength. All these things should be given to him for his glory and for his glory alone. He was the one who gave us everything. It's his decision to start and to sustain the universe, to start and sustain us. And it is unfitting for someone who bears his image to turn away from God, to build our own empire or to give the image of God to someone or something else. It's such a sad distortion of why we were made we would start to bear the image of that other thing more and more, causing our demise, stoking God's anger. The flip side of that, though, is that in giving back to God what is God's, we're reconnecting ourselves with the very thing that we were made for. It's not a harsh thing for us to worship the Lord, and it's not a harsh thing for us to call on others to worship the Lord. It's not unnatural for us to give up the worship of something else in order to worship him when we think that we are his image bearers. We're acknowledging that his rule and his reign is right in our hearts. We're being restored by him to enjoy the very thing for which we were made, to express his likeness and image. Life was never meant to be a dull repetition of the same habits and activities. We were made for so, so much more than that. We were made to bear his image as his creatures, to radiate his glory into the lives of one another. Gospel beacons which reflect his character, reflect his desires in the way that we think and speak and act. It would be wonderful for us to pray that God would shape our hearts and our lives to look increasingly like that, the way that we were always meant to and I think there's other implications for us as we look around about us 
at others in our lives, in our world, we'll soon hear Jesus teach not only the first of those important commandments, but the second, the second most important commandment, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that means that there can be absolutely no hatred for others who are fellow fallen image bearers. Every human being bears God's image, even those we call the least in society, even those we call the least in our own hearts and minds. See, regardless of race, age, sex, personality, history, every person, those not yet born, those who are near death's door, every single human being bears God's image and should be treated so. It is certainly true that we are not worthy of God's love. Our sins leave us unworthy of his forgiveness. But humanity is not worthless. There is no innate righteousness within us. Nothing that God looks at and thinks that he can work with. But there is a status, a dignity. Something that separates us from the other creatures that he created. Something that separates us from the other elements of creation. Something that explains the yearning in every single heart for some sort of justice, some sort of love, some sort of acceptance, some sort of longevity. Something that flinches at injustice, suffering, death. And what a privilege we have of introducing fallen image bearers to the God whose image they bear. As one Christian writer wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So this evening, give back to God that which is God's. Don't give it to yourselves. Don't give it to the state. Don't give it to anything else other than him. As we pray and as we sing in response to what God has said to us, look at yourselves as an image bearer and give back to him what is his. Look at one another as an image bearer and love them as yourself. Those are Jesus' commands for us. So, so much more that could be said, but for the sake of time, let me stop there and let me pray before we sing in response to what we've seen this evening. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his wisdom. We thank you for his power over the authorities to whom he speaks. We thank you that as we are united to him, that he has lived a perfect life where he has borne your image perfectly as one who is truly God and truly man. And we thank you that as we are united to him, we are forgiven and that you look on us in the same way that you look on Jesus as those who perfectly bear God's image. Thank you for that wonderful righteousness that you wrap us in. 
And we pray, Father, that you would help us to live a life that reflects that reality. Help us as individuals and as a church family to increasingly give to God the things that are God's. Give us the strength that we need to do this and help us to do so for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be closed by singing.